Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corporate Report. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you in mid-March of 2023. And sitting here in mid-March of 2023, a story that will be familiar to you all by now, if only from New World next week, of course, is the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in the United States and the resulting banking run uh, spread that has gone across the globe and is now Threatening Credit Suisse, question mark? Yes, some crazy stuff happening in the banking sector, which, again, I just covered with James M. Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com on New World Next Week, so you can see the latest edition of New World Next Week for more on that particular story. But, well, I, I'm pleased to be able to present you something from the Corporate Report archives of great relevance uh, in this edition of the Flashback series. However, I'm, I'm a little miffed that I actually had this particular flashback planned two weeks ago, <laughs> before the Silicon Valley Bank madness started. And I even had an intro for this recorded and everything. But uh, then there was the crazy nuclear propaganda. So I did the flashback on uh, the real Middle East nuclear threat. And then there was the CNN report about Terence Yakey. So I did the flashback about Requiem for the Suicided Terence Yakey. And so here we are. Oh, I missed my chance to look like a prophet. Well, anyway, um, of course, I wasn't going to re-release this particular conversation in this particular time just for the fun of it. It was because at that time in early March of 2023, the concept of bank runs was already swirling around, at least in certain corners of the alternative media world, which I hope you guys picked up on. But if not, I will point to a couple of things that made me think about this. One was a blog post from Ellen Brown, more on which in a moment. And the other was a very interesting committee meeting, specifically a meeting of the Systemic Resolution Advisory Committee uh, of the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation there in the United States, that was had some interesting pull quotes, as it were, about systemic global banking problems and the potential for panic and what we should or shouldn't be telling the public about our plans for various bailout or bail-in scenarios. First of all, I'd like to uh, praise the FDIC for its unrelenting pressures to have more disclosure under the, the actual public reports. I think they have been very helpful. Uh, second, I guess I am a bit pessimistic about your ability to communicate with the people who really need to know in terms of a crisis. And this is partly from my experience of teaching this stuff. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of interest um, just after the crisis. It's dwindled over time. And so people are sort of less and less interested in getting into the nitty gritty and some of the really interesting uh, developments. So I would think your strategy ought to be to disclose as much as possible to people who professionally need to know about it. And that would I, certainly include the ratings agencies and the people within the banks who are responsible for these uh, judgments. Um, and simply have publicly available a place where people can go if they, they need to know more. Because we're dealing with a society where people are getting their information in tweets. There's just no patience, I think, for going through the elaborate and careful planning that has gone on. It should be there. It should be accessible when people need to know. But I don't think you have much hope of, of reaching a public that doesn't have a professional need to know. 
completely agree with that. I almost think you'd scare the public if you put this out. Like, why are they telling me this? Should I be concerned about my bank? Like, my insurance company doesn't tell me what they're doing with my assets. They just assume they're going to pay my claim. Right? It's, it's, I think you've got to think of the unintended consequences of taking a public that has more full faith and confidence in the banking system than maybe people in this room do, <laughs> that we want them to have full faith and confidence in the banking system. They know the FDIC insurance is there. They know it works. They put their money in. They're going to get their money out. So there, there's a select crowd of people that are in the institutional side. And if they want to understand this, they're going to find a way to understand this. There's a bunch of law firms represented in this room. There's a bunch of people that will charge them by the hour a lot of money to explain this all to them. And, and, and it's fine. I don't, have a, I don't have a problem with that. And they all have huge staffs. But I would be careful about the unintended consequences of starting to blast too much of this out in the general public. <laughs> More faith uh, in the banking system than people in this room, am I right? But we don't want to blast out too much information and inform the public. That would be, that would, that, that would just cause worries. Just, shh, shh, it's okay, guys. Don't worry. We're taking care of it. You, just, there's just a pool of money somewhere that will just magically bail out everything. Bail out? Bail in? Anyway, uh, that clip right there is actually informative in a number of ways. Um, one of which is that it is an outright admission that, yes, of course, this system operates not on the full faith and credit of the U.S. government or any other government. It operates on the faith of the public in the banking system itself and that it will function. So don't worry about the details, whatever. Oh, don't worry. They publish it on some form on some website somewhere that you'll never read. It's all, it's all okay. So don't look into the deposit uh, insurance fund that uh, the FDIC runs that is itself invested in the very same bonds that started tanking because the Fed was raising interest rates that caused the, uh, the Silicon Valley, or it was the immediate proximate cause of the Silicon Valley Bank problem. Uh, so what does that mean for the backstop? That will be the, don't worry, guys, you're, you're all covered by the FDIC. Oops, <laughs> the FDIC's uh, insurance uh, uh, deposits aren't doing so well. Their investments aren't, uh, aren't, aren't exactly prospering at this point. So what does that mean? And, oh, don't worry. They'll just magically print more money and it'll just all work out, guys. So, yeah, this is a pretty big topic. And it's a one that's, uh, I think, on the forefront of everyone's minds and should be. But it's not just about bailouts. Um, you will notice, for example, that the Biden administration tried to sell this Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank bailout as not a bailout, guys. Don't worry, we're not bailing out the bank. We're bailing out the depositors in the bank. Now, that's an interesting distinction if you don't understand that depositors, when you are a depositor at a bank, it doesn't mean that you have money that they are keeping for you in a safe somewhere in the bank. No, no, no. You are lending your money to the bank and it is their money now. So when there is a banking crisis, when that bank becomes insolvent and starts going into bankruptcy and, and creditors are coming for their, their pound of flesh, they will take your, your money, which is part of their assets now, and well, we got to give it to them. That's, that's the bail-in scenario that we saw play out quite dramatically uh, in Cyprus about a decade ago, which I covered extensively at the time. You can look back in the Corporate Report archives for more on that in particular. But yes, the entire bail-in mechanism is an incredibly important part of the global banking rules that were restructured just in the past decade, which 
you probably wouldn't know if you were just watching, I don't know, CNN or something. But gladly you're not. You're watching The Corbett Report. So you will remember that I had a conversation with Ellen Brown, the author of Web of Debt, several years ago about new G20 rules that were being proposed at that time, specifically for um, banking and uh, bail-in scenarios and what that meant. And uh, there's a lot of discussion that we're about to watch. So this is a conversation that I recorded for uh, GRTV back when I was filing reports for them. I recorded in late December of 2014. It was released on January 5th of 2015 under the title G20 Rules Make Bank Bail-Ins a Reality. And that report is up on my site. Uh, I'm going to be playing a good portion of it for you here today, the relevant portion, I think, to what we're discussing. But this all swirls around the blog post that I talked about earlier that um, Ellen Brown came up with in late February. Uh, so just uh, a few weeks before the Silicon Valley shenanigans started to erupt. Uh, what will happen when banks go bust? Bank runs, bail-ins, and systemic risk risk, in which she writes that the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010 states in its preamble that it will protect the American taxpayer by ending bailouts. But it does this under Title II by imposing the losses of insolvent financial companies on their common and preferred stockholders, debt holders, and other unsecured creditors through an orderly resolution plan known as a bail-in. And I would suggest you read through this entire post because there's a lot of good information in it. In fact, you should be keeping up with Ellen Brown's blog because she also recently had a, uh, a post up about the looming quadrillion dollar derivatives crisis that will be a potential next step in this unfolding banking crisis. So there's a lot more to learn and understand, but today we're going to look specifically at this 2015 G, uh, GRTV report on bail-ins and its obvious relevance to some of the things that we see taking place right now, and I hope to be following up on this topic in the very near future. But for now, please enjoy this flashback. Last month's G20 summit in Australia came and went without the protests and riots we've come to expect at the summit in recent years. But as author and researcher Ellen Brown notes, the real fireworks happened behind closed doors, where the group rubber-stamped new regulations that will make Cyprus-style bank bail-ins a worldwide reality. This is the GRTV Feature Interview with Ellen Brown and your host, James Corbett. All right, Ellen Brown, let's talk about a series of articles that you've been writing recently that I think are extremely important on the subject of banking regulation. And this, uh, well, we can pick this story up at the recent G20 meeting, which really didn't recreate much of a, a splash in the, either the mainstream or the alternative media, uh, generally speaking. But there was an important uh, rubber stamping of a piece of, uh, well, a white paper uh, regulation proposal by a shadowy body known as the Financial Stability Board. Board that very, very few people have ever heard of, but is quietly rewriting the, uh, the the architecture, the infrastructure for global banking regulations behind the scenes. And uh, you start by uh, noting this in an article that I'll refer readers to called New G20 Rules, Cypress-Style Bail-Ins to Hit Depositors and Pensioners. 
And this is a very important subject, but one that unfortunately it's uh, difficult for a lot of people to wrap their minds around because there's a lot of jargon here, including a white paper from the Financial Stability Board that we'll link to called The Adequacy of Loss-Absorbing Capacity of Global Systemically Important Banks in Resolution which I defy you to say 10 times quickly in a row. But uh, at any rate, these are the types of rules that are really going to have a significant effect on us. I'm sure the audience is by now very familiar with the idea of banking bailouts as l what we saw in the 2008 crisis. But in the event of the next crisis, we may be looking at a bail-in scenario uh, similar to what happened in Cyprus last year. For people who are not familiar with the idea of bail-in, perhaps you can tell, walk us through that and what that actually means in the event of the next global systemic banking collapse? Well, after the last one, um, governments balked at bailing out their big banks again. And so, for example, in the U.S., the Dodd-Frank Act said no more bailouts. Of course, they just now changed that. But that's what it said. And so, the, but it didn't say that we're going to just let these banks go bankrupt. It's, it said there's going to be a new way of doing it you, the banks, are going to have to figure out how to recapitalize yourselves. And so we want to see you come up with living wills. These are like zombie banks coming up with living wills for what they're going to do in the, in the event that they're about to expire. And what they're actually told to do is to confiscate the, um, <clears throat> the assets of their creditors. And this would be their shareholders, their bondholders, and their depositors, which is the largest class of creditor of any bank. Now, theoretically, we're protected by uh, depositor insurance. In the U.S., it would be FDIC insurance. But the FDIC fund, and that, first of all, that only goes up to $250,000. So the people who aren't covered would be businesses, for example, who keep a lot of money. They need a lot of money for their cash flow. They have to pay their payroll and so forth. And in Cyprus, for example, everybody over the deposit limit, which in the Eurozone is 100,000 euros, um, lost 60, per, well, 50, I guess about, in the end, they lost about 50% of what they had in the bank. Well, that was a huge hit. And these were mostly businesses, local businesses. So that means they wind up either closing their doors or laying off their employees. So everybody basically got hit. The whole economy got hit. And that's what we'd be looking at as well. Um, I've seen well, I've seen that they they're they're now telling their large depositors pull your money out of the bank because we don't want it anymore. So now what are they gonna where are they gonna go with their money? Of course, my thing is public banking. I think we have to set up our own publicly owned banks. <laughs> so anyway, the the people under two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which would be most of us are supposedly covered by this FDIC fund, which currently, last time I looked, had um, $46 billion in it. The problem is that there are $4.5 trillion or so of deposits that are covered by that $46 billion. That's like half of all the deposits, which are close to $10 trillion. So obviously there's not enough money to cover all the deposits. Theoretically, the FDIC has a $500 billion um, credit line with the treasury. But first of all, they have to pay that money back. They're supposed to give this a payment schedule and show how they're going to pay it back. Who's going to pay it back? It's supposed to be the um, their, their members who pay premiums. And the last time they had to pay back much, much less, just like a few billion. It, it was very hard on the small banks. And many of the small banks then wound up 
either going under or, or selling out to the, the larger banks. So they would never be able to bail out a JP Morgan or a Bank of America, which both have over a trillion dollars in deposits. And but the but the big liability is their derivatives. They have um, there are two hundred eighty trillion in derivatives that are that's the exposure of the U.S. banks. There are six big banks that are there, or five or six big banks that are the big derivatives banks. And um, so J.P. Morgan, for example, both J.P. Morgan and Bank of America have over fifty trillion in derivatives. So if they get hit with a big something unexpected, a big derivatives loss, then it could well be it could well wipe out their deposits. And the problem is that under the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 2005, uh, the derivatives players go first in bankruptcy. So they get to snatch all the collateral before the FDIC even gets in there, or the the state and local governments who they theoretically have are secured with collateral, but so are the derivatives players, and they're the ones that get to go first. So they're going to take all the money. And right now, what we're looking at, and why I think there's all this haste to change the rules again, is um, the the collapse in the price of oil, which has gone down by about 50, it's gone down by half, which nobody anticipated. And it's not within, of course, the banks plan for it, they hedge, and they plan for all these things when they do their derivatives, but nobody planned for that because it's it simply was not the result of supply and demand. There's pretty good evidence that it's actually geopolitical warfare <clears throat> against Russia and, and Iran, but particularly uh, Russia. So that is going, so there are, the big banks are the counterparties on all these derivatives that um, the oil producers buy in order to protect their price. It's just like derivatives, the original derivative was agriculture where the the corn producer would uh, want to guarantee the price of his corn and he didn't know what it would be several months ahead when the corn finally went to market. So so he, he would lock in a price and some speculator would would take the other side of the bet and agree to pay that price no matter what it really was, betting that it would actually be more than that. So the banks are the counterparties on these oil bets and they could go very, very wrong. I mean, they obviously already have gone very, very wrong, but but there's a certain payout period, so so they're not, some of them must have been due by now, but but most of them I think are like three months and several years ahead. So the oil price will have to go back up and very quickly, or somebody's going to lose a lot of money on that. And it turns out now it's going to be us because of this recent change last weekend in the uh, in, where they took out the the one the one thing that the banks were not allowed to cover were their speculative bets for their own account, which included commodities. So that was like only nine five percent of their derivatives, but still that works out to fourteen trillion in derivatives. It's fair fair hit like the size of the federal debt, <clears throat> and that's the part that now uh, is covered since they squeezed that into this omnibus. Um, budget bill. But lay this out for us, because traditionally the uh, the speculative derivative trades of banks have been separated from the commercial banking infrastructure of banks until about a decade and a half ago. Can you walk us through that process and how this became part of the, uh, the basically one big banking system? Uh, right. Uh, well, there it was 
1933, um, Roosevelt passed the Glass-Steagall Act, which said that, of course, at that point, the, the banks had been wiped out. They had a bank holiday, closed the banks. And when they opened up, it was totally new rules. And one of the rules was that we were no longer on the gold standard. But one of them was that banks were no longer allowed to gamble with their depositors' money. They had to put the depositors' money in one one arm or one, you know, they had to be separate banks at that time, I think. So so you would have your investment wing over here and your, your um, deposits over here. But in 1999 and 2000, that was that act was repealed supposedly because our banks were losing out on global markets and had to be able to compete. But really, they it, it was actually part of the World Trade Organization um, rules where all the countries had to agree to this to uh, to open their banks or open their borders so that so that all the banks would be under these same rules because it wouldn't work if only our banks were doing it well that's the same thing that we're seeing with the g20 here originally it was the g7 and i think they probably thought well that's not enough countries we need all the big countries so they they roped all the 20 countries into into the g20 as if they were having some sort of control over the rules but really what it was was that it would get them under the thumb of the Financial Stability Board, which would then just do these edicts and all the countries would, would have to comply. And they are, they are complying because they don't seem to know what they're doing. I mean, you know that, like Obama, you can just imagine that he hasn't, he's not real up on the, um, the bail-in procedure and so forth. He just, his advisors tell him to sign it, so he signs it. I mean, his job is to do the photo ops and maybe say something ru- rude about the Putin and other <laughs> leaders that he doesn't like it. You know, it's all it's all a staged thing for over several days, and nobody looks real closely at these hundreds of pages that they're supposed to put their stamp of approval on. Let's talk about the process by which this is being uh, implemented in the various G20 countries, because to me, this is the real face of the globalization and the global government threat that we're facing. It's not this idea of some parliament of the world that's meeting or something like this. It's these bodies that most people don't even know exist that are writing these types of white papers on regulatory reforms that are then rubber stamped by the G20 and implemented in each country individually. But it's basically like this Financial Stability Board is writing the global banking regulations for all of the G20 countries, more or less. Let's talk about the FSB, where it came from, and how it is uh, locked into this agenda, and who's really running it anyway. Well, originally it was the FSF, which was the Financial Stability Forum. That was in 1999, and it was formed after the last crisis, or the crisis before last, the the Asian crisis, um, in order to stabilize the banking system. So then it was just seven countries, the seven largest industrialized countries, and it was merely advisory. But after the 2008 collapse, um, the, they enlarged it to be the G20. There, there was a meeting of the G20 in London, and they all agreed to be bound by the rules of this Financial Stability Board which is housed in the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland. It's not, it isn't exactly the BIS, but there's certainly some obvious connections there. And the BIS is itself a very shady entity that uh, started out in 1930 to do um, settlement of the reparations payments from Germany. But as it turned out, 
the German, the German Central Bank uh, pretty much called the shots on the on the BIS. And anyway, it was very controversial. They were dealing with confiscated gold, etc. There was an attempt to get it shut down, but somehow it kind of went underground, and then it reappeared and became the. Uh, well, it really reappeared when they built this building that was this very unusual looking building that that looks like a uh, well anyway it looks like it comes out of a science fiction movie and it's shaped like a boot and there's it's rumored that the boot came from this line out of 1984 where um, where um, Winston is told something I can't remember something about um, the shape of the future would be uh, if you want to see the shape of the future visualize a boot on the neck of the people and so there we are it is such a a bizarre story and one that has really really been underreported in a lot of ways there's a couple of good books out there on the subject but not nearly enough so um the bis and its shady history and its connections into the fsb and then in the back door to the g20 is a fascinating story in and of itself but let's let's put this in concrete terms for people so uh we're talking for example about what's happening in the oil markets right now and the oil uh derivatives exposure of the various too big to fail banks that are of course now being institutionalized through this various legislation as being too big to fail. Let's imagine a scenario where some of these uh, bets go very wrong and one or two or several of these banks go start to go under. What what are the chain of events that are, that are likely to take place under this new regulatory framework? Well, the, the bank then, let, let's assume it is oil. Um, the oil, with an oil derivative, if it go, if the, the prices drop fifty dollars and and it was guaranteed at whatever anyway at fifty dollars higher they're going to owe fifty dollars on every single barrel of oil so they're going to owe a huge amount of money which obviously they don't have so they will have to try to get that from their creditors under the under the the bail-in plan so under the new the latest version of the bail-in um plan, they're supposed to have 16 to 20% of their risk-weighted assets in the form of bail-inable, either equity or something that can be bailed in, bonds that can be turned into equity. So these are basically the same kind of bonds that banks have always sold, but now they're going to say somewhere in the fine print that in the event that, that the bank becomes insolvent, your bond will become equity. In other words, you will then have stock in a bankrupt bank. And the the catch is who buys these bonds? It's basically the pension funds. There there are some speculators who buy them, but they're very short term and their life would be gone when when the big collapse happens and the pension funds will be left holding the bag. So we the people, once again, are going to be footing the bill, whether it's in the form of our pension funds or our deposits. But let's assume they do get to the deposits. First, they would take the deposits over $250,000 in the US. In, in Europe, they'll take the deposits over 100,000 euros. The, the deal in Europe was supposed to, there was um, this banking union that they agreed to last spring, and it was supposed to be a three-pronged deal where first, the bankrupt banks would go, uh, would bail in their creditors' money. 
And before they would be allowed to go to the bailout fund, all the countries contributed to this bailout fund. But before the banks could get that money, they had to bail in a certain proportion of their own creditors money. And theoretically, there would be the third prong was supposed to be this Europe wide insurance that would uh, that would cover the depositors under 100,000 euros. But the only problem was they couldn't agree on the insurance. Of course, Germany did not want to be responsible for for Greece and Italy and Spain and all the countries that were liable to cost a fair amount of money. <clears throat> so so they don't have the insurance, which is critical to this this whole plan. So if you're in one of those con- those southern countries that's very vulnerable and your big banks go bankrupt, your only recourse is going to be to your own government, which at that point, no doubt, is going to be bankrupt. So it'll be another Cyprus only in that in this instance it'll probably be the the um, the ordinary depositors who get hit as well it's a very dangerous game of dominoes that's being played uh, right now and obviously this is a game for all the marbles and we have to try to avoid this because as you were saying earlier probably most of the people listening to this conversation in America will be in one of the the big five banks uh, with their deposits or around the world will be in similar institutions in various countries like here in Japan with the largest bank in the world the Japan Post which is being privatized as we speak so uh, there are a lot of uh, problems systemic problems that are being built in, sort of baked into the cake here, and there has to be a way out of this. Uh, you raise the the idea of public banking as a solution to this type of crisis. Tell us more about that idea and how that can help to uh, to stem this uh, this problem before it starts. Hopefully, well, the one solution that you always hear in Congress is to go to reinstate the Glass Steagall Act, which would separate um, investment banking and depository banking, but they haven't managed to pass such a bill, so we can actually do it ourselves. We can have the same effect. We can protect our deposits by setting up our own banks. And if they're ta- if they're now telling the big depositors to pull that they don't even want their money to pull their money out, where are they going to put their money? We need to set up some some banks that are safe. And the the easiest way to do it is to set up publicly owned banks where you take the the money of the governments, the local government, like let's say California. I've been working on that, of course, because I live in California. So you take the, the deposits of the government, put it in your own bank. Um, California currently has $54 billion in a treasurer's investment pool earning 0.23% interest. In other words, it's earning almost nothing. You could take, you can't spend that money. This is supposedly rainy day money but you could invest it. So let's say you bought CDs in your own bank with it and you could pay them more than 0.23% and you'd have a huge capital and deposit base that you could leverage for your own economy. For the purposes of your own economy, you could save 50% on the cost of infrastructure because 50% of the cost of infrastructure is now interest over the course of a 30-year bond. And you could have a safe and secure place for not only your public deposits, but for your private deposits. It just seems to me so obvious that that's what we should do. But it's very hard to to move politicians until they're in a crisis. And then you have something like 1933, where the banks close and when they open, it's a whole new deal. And they say, okay, new rules, we're going to do it this way now. So that may be what it takes, a big crisis. 
It, 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 well, we often find that, that big moves don't happen until there's a crisis, but unfortunately we always find that there's a pre-approved, pre, uh, pre-determined solution that's ready and waiting in yeah. the wings for those types of crises that generally don't work out in the people's favor. So it is, I certainly resonate with the idea that we have to start taking the bull by the horns and implementing this on our own before it, it gets to that crisis point. And for the people in the crowd folding their arms and uh, being cynical and saying, well, that's never going to work. We, we don't have the resources to do this. We can't beat the system. What do you say to those uh, naysayers? Oh, it actually would be very simple to set up our own bank. So you could do it in a couple of months. They're in Seattle right now. They're, um, they're working on a publicly owned city owned bank in Santa Fe, New Mexico. They're, they're like, they're doing a feasibility study on it. So, so there are movements all over the country, Philadelphia, et cetera. Um, it's just a matter of the political will. Once, once you decide to do it, it would be very quick. I mean, private people can set up a bank. There's no reason that a government, which has lots of deposits that they could put into this bank, that can't just, I mean, you don't even need a building. All you have to do is have somebody in your treasury be the bank. And it's really just an accounting function. So the only thing that won't work is getting your politicians to do it. Once you get past that barrier, it's very easy. All right. Well, let's leave it there for now. Obviously, this is an extremely important subject, so I hope people are following your uh, reporting on this. And obviously, we will direct them to ellenbrown.com. Are there any other places or sources of information you'd like to direct people to? Um, Well, I have two books on this subject, Web of Debt and The Public Bank Solution, and they're both available on Amazon. Excellent. All right, Ellen Brown, thank you again for your time and thank you for this reporting. It's very important and I'm glad you're doing it. Oh, thanks, James. For more on this story and other breaking news and current events, please go to globalresearch.ca. For more research and analysis by James Corbett, please go to corbettreport.com.